Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that uh, write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. I'm so excited to have Sunil Gupta, the author of uh, Backable, and Sunil has an amazing background. So Sunil, before we talk about your book, uh, why did you write this book and, and why this title? And then tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Hi, Mark. Hi, everybody. Uh, it's really nice to be here. Um, yeah. Why don't we start with the book? You know, uh, Mark, I, uh, along the path of my career, which has kind of been along the lines of uh, politics and media and technology and startups, uh, I, I began to realize that creativity and persuasion are two different things. You could have a great idea. You can have a brilliant vision. You can have an amazing product. And you can still be dismissed. And we know that and we see that all the time. You know, one of the stories that continues to stand out, especially when we're sort of in the midst of this pandemic, is a story of a guy named Dr. Alexander Fleming. And if that name doesn't sound familiar to you, Dr. Fleming uh, invented penicillin. He, during World War I, he began to realize that soldiers were dying, but they weren't dying from their wounds. They were dying because those wounds would become infected. And so he vowed to find a cure to this problem. And then in the 1920s, he did. But when he went out and pitched penicillin to a few local investors, uh, he was turned down. He was dismissed. And instead of keeping up with it, he decided to just take his invention, put it on a shelf, and walked away. And over the next 10 years, hundreds of thousands of people died from infection. And it wasn't until another physician, a guy by the name of Dr. Howard Florey came along and said, hey, you know, I think you might actually have found the cure that they were able to go out and rally the pharmaceutical companies, bring in investors, uh, get behind retailers, and eventually made penicillin into something you could find at the local pharmacy. But to date, penicillin has saved nearly 200 million lives, and it's an invention that almost never existed. So this all got me thinking about the idea of backable people. And backable people are people who are able to get inside a room and really rally us to take a chance on them. That could be for an idea for a product. That could be during an audition, an interview, a sales pitch, an investor pitch. Even when they're not necessarily the obvious choice, we still feel compelled to rally around them. They have almost this mysterious it quality. And I wanted to understand, like, what is that it quality? What is it that makes someone backable? And can we learn that? And so what I've done is I've spent the past five plus years now studying backable people from all different walks of life, from Oscar winning filmmakers to celebrity chefs, to military leaders, to iconic founders. Uh, and what I realize is that being backable very much can be learned. And if you rewind the careers of most backable people, and you go back to the early early, early parts of their careers. They actually started out very much not backable. Backable wasn't something that they were born with. It was something that they made over time through a series of habits. And you don't need to be a celebrity. You don't need to be a CEO. And that's a good thing because I think we could all use a little bit of being backable in our lives. doesn't matter if you're talking about your career, you're talking about your community, you're talking about your company. Any type of change that we're try, trying to create, small or big, any type of change. We need hiring managers. We need teams. We need partners. We need clients. We need investors. We even need friends and family to, to rally around us, to believe in us. So how do you get other people to see in you what you see in yourself? That's what this book is all about. And uh, so what are the three takeaways you want them to walk away with from reading this book? And by the way, once you get this book, you cannot put this book down because of the variety of stories that you tell and the different backgrounds and industries that people are in. 
like once I started, I was like plowing through until about three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> well, thanks, Mark. That that means a lot, especially because I know you're you're an avid reader, and that that really does mean a lot. So you know, why don't I why don't I just give you the high level of the of the book because because there were. There, and then we'll dig in because there there are seven there are seven habits that ended up sticking out to me. And what I tried to do, just in terms of process for writing this book, you know, I'd spent nearly fifteen years uh, in working in Silicon Valley, working in tech, working as an entrepreneur, trying to get my ideas off the ground. I began writing this book when I had started a company called Rise, which was a one-on-one nutrition coaching company. And I was out there pitching investor after investor and getting rejected by everybody that I pitched. And so part of me arrived at this book, not out of not because I had a solution, but because I had a problem. But what I tried to do was I tried to take every lesson that I learned and, and I tried to sort of separate out anything that was obvious, right? So for example, people need to trust who you are in a room. Absolutely critical, essential, but also in the column of, I think, obvious for me. But I tried to separate these seven non-obvious habits out. And the seven non-obvious habits are, number one, to convince yourself first. In order for other people to believe, you have to believe. Number two is to cast a central character. So going beneath the storytelling that we always sort of hear now, you have to tell a good story. How do you tell a great story? That's where we get into casting a central character. The third is to play uh, exhibition matches. Exhibition matches are low stakes practice sessions before you get into a high stakes situation. The fourth is to share an earned secret, share an earned secret. So this is a, this is a non-obvious piece of insight that you have gone beyond Google to find, and then you bring that into the room. The fifth is to flip outsiders into insiders. So making other people feel like it's their idea as well. Uh, The great phrase is, in order for people to commit, people will commit if they feel like they can co-create, if they feel like they were part of the idea. So flipping outsiders into insiders. The sixth is to make an idea feel inevitable. We always talk about why an idea, a new idea is new and exciting and shiny, but we also have to make that idea feel like it's going to happen one way or another, right? And that was that was an important one for me. The, the seventh is to let go of your ego, which may sound a little bit sort of hippy-dippy in Eastern philosophy, but it very much is not. If you look at the most backable people, what they're able to do is they're able to take the spotlight that is on them, and they're able to shine that spotlight on something else, that's the mission, that's the product, that's the customer that they're trying to serve. It's almost as if when they're in the room, they're not representing themselves. They're representing someone else. And it's through that representation of someone else that they're really able to shine. So those are the seven non-obvious insights. And then for each of those insights in the book, we dig into the specific techniques that backable people use to bring those into reality. And we're going to talk about some of those, but before that, give them a little bit about your professional background, which is really interesting because you went from IT to law school and then product development. And then with a little time spent in the law, you uh, did you get anything from law school that helped you in your career as an entrepreneur? So give them a little bit about the background, especially after your mom read that piece in the New York Times uh, that you spoke at. What was the conference's name? It's called Failcon. Yeah, yeah, Belcon. Uh, my mom would be crying to her Mahjong group if uh, that happened to me as well. So talk a little bit about your background and what led you up to all of this. Yeah, sure. You know, so the, 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 the conference that Mark is referring to is called Belcon. And, you know, Bill Gates has this great quote, which is that success is a lousy teacher. And if, and if that's true, then I consider myself to be very, very well educated because I've had a string of things that did not work. Canceled projects, bankrupt startups. I've run for political office and lost. Um, In the midst of all this, I get a phone call from an organizer of a conference called FailCon, which stands for Failure Conference. And, you know, it's, it's a very humbling experience when someone calls you and says, hey, you know, we're doing this conference on failure, and we would love for you to be the keynote speaker. 
<laughs> the poster boy. <laughs> the poster boy, right? Um, so you know, I decide I decide to do this. I decide to do this talk, and I'm up on stage, and I don't realize this at the time, but the New York Times is in the audience. There's a reporter there, and she's scribbling notes, and they have a photographer there, and. You know, fast forward to I'm sitting in my I'm sitting in my apartment with my wife, and all of a sudden, you know, we open up the the New York Times, and it's a full length full length article on failure, and it's my my face, my photo at the very top <laughs> of this article. Now, the thing is that this was right around the time mark. If you remember, like failure was starting to become something that everybody was starting to talk about. Badge of honor. Yeah, exactly. It was starting to, you saw a lot of failure articles out there and it was just, it became part of the dialogue. So this article ended up going viral and it went so viral that at the time for a few month period, you could have, you could have literally searched for the term failure and you would have seen my face as one of your top search results. So now there's no hiding behind this sort of image or illusion or LinkedIn profile of success. Like you literally are this poster child for failure. And a friend of mine sort of gave me this piece of advice and I'll, I'll, I'll share it with you. It, you know, the, 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 in Buddhism, there's this saying that, the, that every time you get hurt, there are two arrows that are shot. The first arrow is the arrow that punctures your skin. And then there's nothing you can do about that. It hurts. It sucks. But the second arrow is where you ascribe meaning to that pain. It, what do you do with it? How, how do you use that? How can you use that setback in some way as a stepping stone? And the way that I, I decided to try to do that is by, by, by going to all these people that I admired from all these different industries. And I would send this article out through a cold call email usually. And I would say in the email, clearly, as you can see from this article, I don't know what I'm doing. Would you be willing to grab 15 minutes with me? Just give me some advice, grab coffee, jump on the phone. And the response rate to that email was, it was astronomically high. I was stunned by the number of people who said yes. And I, and I have something to compare that to because I've, some, I've been somebody who's been cold calling people throughout my whole career and not getting anywhere near that type of reaction. Um, but when I, when I sort of approached it from the, the diff, the failure angle of, Hey, like, instead of me trying to tell you how successful I am, let me share with you how much I've, I've messed up in my career. It, it just, it, I, first of all, people responded to it. Second of all, the conversations that we had were so much more rich because now I wasn't just, again, I wasn't just getting the LinkedIn profile. I wasn't just getting the bio people were willing to sort of rewind their career back to their own failures and tell me about their setbacks. And it was through those setbacks that we actually get the learning. And, and that's where I started to, I started to say, look, I'm learning so much from these conversations. Let me start putting this down on paper and really figure out like what, you know, what other people might be able to learn as well. And today, today, these are the lessons inside the book and, and the lessons that I teach in, in my post over at Harvard. So let's get into that. And one of the things I thought was very interesting from the very beginning of the book is that you, you talk about the need to have conviction to succeed. Please define conviction as it relates to the premise of your book and possibly becoming a unicorn entrepreneur, which is why everybody signed up as so they could be that unicorn entrepreneur. Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, when I started writing the book, I thought that backable people were all going to have a certain style of uh, communication. I, I believed that I was going to find that they all made great use of eye contact and hand gestures and pacing, but I, I found that to, to very much not be the case. I mean, certainly you do have backable people out there that feel a lot more sort of Dale Carnegie-esque, uh, more Toastmasters-esque, but there are plenty of backable people out there and plenty of unicorn founders out there that that don't don't exhibit any of those characteristics. Um, take Elon Musk is, is a great example of this. You know, after Elon Musk unveiled the future of SpaceX, Inc. Magazine wrote a headline that said, Elon Musk fails public speaking 101. Or, or take Steve Jobs, who I think we all, I think, naturally look back at and say this was a charismatic presenter. This was somebody who was highly charismatic. You know, go back and watch the 2007 iPhone launch, the original iPhone launch, and you might be surprised 
you might be you might be surprised by how sort of low energy some of that presentation actually was. He uses the word uh over 80 times in that speech. He's, looks at his feet a lot. It's just not, it's not the poster child for charisma. And yet it was, a, as we know, a, a groundbreaking, a groundbreaking presentation. Or, you know, last example, go look up the number one most popular TED Talk of all time. And what you might be surprised to find is a very un-TED-like presentation. Sir Ken Robinson is this amazing, amazing person. He, he, was, he was truly great. He stood up on stage though with one hand in his pocket he had a slouch. He sort of meandered on and off script. It wasn't very TED-like, and yet it was a brilliant, brilliant talk. What I realized over time, Mark, is that it's not charisma that makes a person convincing. It's conviction. Backable people take the time to convince themselves first, and then they let that conviction shine through in whatever style it is that feels most natural to them. So, you know, putting this into practice, you know, we, 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 we often, I think, I think all of us here can probably relate to a moment where we were with friends or we were with colleagues and we, an idea struck us, something we got really excited about. And we decided to blurt it out in the moment, right? And we said, Hey, what about this? And then we look around and we realize that no one is quite as excited about this idea as we are. And what, what we've, I mean, it's an incredibly deflating moment. And I think what ends up happening is that most people take that idea, they put it in a mental drawer, shut the drawer and walk away. You know, one of the things that, that we found when researching this book is that if you look inside companies and look at the way ideas are actually made and, and not made inside companies, most ideas, including the great ones, aren't killed inside the conference room. They're not killed inside formal pitches. They're killed inside hallways. They're killed inside casual conversations around water coolers. Because again, what happens is we share the idea before we really have high conviction. Someone throws a hard question our way. We don't know how to answer it. It's a deflating moment. So what backable people tend to do is almost this very simple decision tree in their head. An idea comes to mind and they ask themselves, is this an idea that I have high conviction for? Or is this an idea I have a low conviction for? One way to think about it, is this a peanut M&M? Or if you squeeze it, it doesn't crack? Or is this a chocolate M&M? Or if you squeeze it, it cracks immediately. Doesn't have to be bulletproof, doesn't have to be a piece of metal, but is it a peanut M&M? Or if somebody starts asking me questions, can I actually get into a dialogue about this idea? What backable people do is they say, if this is a peanut M&M and I've got some conviction for it, let me share it. There's no time like the present. But if it's a chocolate M&M, if it's something I have lower conviction for, then let me resist the temptation to share it in this moment, no matter how excited I am, and take in the book what we call incubation time to put the peanut inside. And there's all sorts of techniques we can get into on how to incubate an idea. I've got some personal favorite techniques I'd be happy to share. But this incubation time, this conviction that we build is so much more important than charisma. It's so, it's so much more important. If you don't have that belief, if you don't have that conviction, no fancy hand gesture, no fancy slide is going to save you. I, I can't agree more. Every time I've raised money for myself, uh, that's what the investors told me was. I don't, I'm not sure if the idea is that is good. I mean, it sounds, it makes sense, but I love how much, how passionate you are about this idea and how much you know about this space. And so why not give it a try? And I also seen, I had a student at Wharton who had to make a presentation to one of our clients and the client kept um, asking him, would you put your own money into this idea? And the guy said, no. And so another student jumped in and said, absolutely, 100%. Let me tell you why. At the end of the presentation was over. The uh, CEO said, I was really disappointed the other guy just gave up so easily. But the other guy, he was so passionate about it that I'm going to offer him the GM's job for all of Mexico. Oh, and that's what he did. Wow. All because of, as you said, he came across with great conviction. So talk about just briefly about the incubation process that you go through. Yeah. You know, so some people like to draw uh, their ideas out. I, I, I'm, I'm more of a writer. And so what I like to do is I, I typically like to just pull up blank sheets of paper 
pull out blank sheets of paper and I start to, I start to write out my idea in, in sort of full paragraphs. And I know Mark, one of the things that, that stood out to you is sort of Bezos's narrative process. And we can talk more about that, but I, I just like to, I just like literally like to write out my idea. And I start to ask myself the way that I, the way that I typically like to do this is almost like I'm doing a Q and a with myself. So I'll ask a question, you know, and the question will be something like, well, why does this idea matter? And I'll answer that. Then I'll ask myself, well, why now? Why is this the right time for this idea? And I'll answer that. And I just continue to do this Q&A. There's a couple of things that I like to, I like to do, though, that I think are more specific than that. The first is after I have sort of exhausted the excitement inside my head, after I've kind of written out all the obvious reasons I'm excited about an idea, I like to take my, my advocate hat off and I like to put my critic hat on. And I like to start poking holes in the ideas. And specifically, what I'm trying to do is identify two to three key objections to the idea. And the reason that that's important, the reason that matters, is because I believe that if you can only talk about the strengths of an idea, you haven't quite built the conviction yet. As soon as you walk into a room, what you're really kind of hoping will happen is that they won't bring the bad stuff up or they won't bring the objections up. But if you're walking into a room with the mentality of, I hope we just stay focused on this and not that, you're not really, you're not really high conviction. So steering into two to three key objections to your idea and then doing your best to answer those. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that you need to have a perfect answer because most new ideas will not. If they did, they probably wouldn't be a new idea. But just by being able to answer those questions and having the confidence of being able to have a conversation about the obvious objections of your idea, it wins you credibility with your audience, right? Because chances are those objections are on their mind and it's probably just nagging at them. But if you're able to sort of steer into them and have an open, honest conversation, you win credibility and it also tunes them in for the stronger parts of your pitch. So that's something to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, allow yourself in the, in the, in this new stage of writing your idea out, allow yourself to wander a little bit. The saying I like to keep coming back to is to fall in love with the problem, but don't necessarily fall in love with the solution. Fall in love with the problem, but not the solution. Especially in these early, early stages when inspiration hits you, oftentimes, you know, you, we, we get fixated on not just the problem, but the solution. We say, this is exactly how it needs to be done. But if you allow yourself during this incubation period to sort of meander and wander just a little bit, you might end up finding yourself in a place that's much, much better. You know, we, we, we spoke to IDEO as part, of, as part of this book. And one of the things that IDEO does is when a client comes in, sometimes what they'll say is, okay, the client came in with what they think the solution is. Why don't we, why don't we challenge each other for a half hour, do a half hour brainstorm and think of eight alternatives to this solution? Same problem, but eight alternatives. And typically what they say is the client is resisting, will resist that. They'll say, no, no, we think we have the answer here. I say, well, okay, well, let's just take a half hour, not a lot of time, and think about these sort of eight alternatives. Eight little, it can be even just little twists on the solution. And what they find more often than not is that by the time the client gets to number four or number five, they have arrived on something better. So again, fall in love with the problem, not in love with the solution when you're in this incubation time. By the way, I feel like I'm on QVC because people are, are typing here that they're buying the book as you're speaking. So clearly you've got great <laughs> conviction and they're buying that. Uh, right. What's the one skill all successful people have developed, do you think, from your own observation? Mm. I think it's the ability to get better. I think it's the ability to learn. You know, um, if you're if you're in the mood for those of you who are buying the book, if you're in the mood for buying books and you haven't read Mindset by Carol Dweck, it's another great one. You know, and and I, I think it just shows that when we stop learning, uh, you know, we, we we clearly stop growing, we stop leading. I think that that you know one of the, one of the mindset shifts that I have I have sort of adopted as a result of this as a result of this book is you know that long term. Success comes from short-term embarrassment. And, and that, that short-term embarrassment is typically because you're out there trying to learn new things. 
You're putting yourself in you know, different situations. You're allowing yourself to test new things. And so there was this, there was this, there's almost this, this willingness that I, that I saw amongst all extraordinary people where it was, it was clear that they were always open to reinventing, always opening to, to changing and to tweaking themselves. The first time that I, that I ever noticed this was, well, I, you know, I, I mentioned that I have a, I have a little bit of a background in politics and in 2004, I was working backstage at the democratic national convention. And I was a writer, and you know, at the at the at the conventions, you, you typically have all of sort of like the the normal kind of the normal headline speakers, right? So, backstage was the Clintons and the Gores and the Liebermans at that time. This is two thousand four, but there was one person that no one really recognized, and it was a state senator from Illinois. And Barack Obama gets up and he gives his he gives his two thousand four speech that puts him on the map. And during that time, while everybody was sort of watching him. I was backstage watching them and I could just see this tidal wave of energy just rip through the crowd. And I, I became really fascinated with his, with the story. But what I was surprised to learn, Mark, was that in 2000, just four years before that, he ran for Congress and he lost, he lost, and he, lost yeah. by, and he lost huge. He lost by a two to one margin. But what was even more surprising, the, the most surprising thing to me was the way that he was received during that campaign, people described him as stilted, as professorial, as boring, right? And then four years later, he's just this, he's a bastion of energy. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, this ability, I think, to sort of drop our own script and, and to use these failures and to use these setbacks as learning opportunities is by far the most common denominator amongst extraordinary people. So let's talk about what you did at Groupon and what you learned from their success. And also when things kind of took a wrong turn yeah. uh, for Groupon and they had to have some significant layoffs and people felt a little bit of drift. So talk about what you did at Groupon and what you learned there. Yeah. You know, the way that, the way that I, the way that I, I met Andrew Mason, who was the founder uh, of, of Groupon, was at the time I was working at a company called Mozilla, which is the maker of Firefox. And I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I got wind of this startup that was starting to gain a little bit of traction out of Chicago uh, called Groupon. And I was introduced to Andrew, and and, and basically the the I flew out there because you know I wanted to I wanted to get a better sense of the company. I wasn't sure at the time, you know, I was married. I wasn't sure if, if, if we wanted to if we wanted to move back to the Midwest. I'm originally from the Midwest, but you know we were just starting to find our footing in San Francisco, and we felt pretty good out there. But when I w- what impressed me most is that when I got there to meet Andrew, um, and, and again at this time. Very very small company. They had not raised a Series A at that point. Just a, just a seed round, and you know our interview was it was not behind you know was not around a conference table was not in an office. Instead, he said, "Let's take a walk." And so we did, and we walked around Chicago. And as we walked around Chicago, he pointed to all these different sort of retail, these mom and pop shops, and he would tell me their stories. He'd say, you know, that's that's Jim who owns that bakery over there. And, you know, the thing about Jim is that, you know, his grandmother taught him how to bake and, you know, he loved it so much. Um, and, you know, and, 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 and he, he decided that he wanted to make that his career. But the thing that Jim doesn't want to do is he doesn't want to do marketing or doesn't want to do customer acquisition. He just he really loves to bake. And one of our roles as, as Groupon is to sort of take the rest of that load away from him so he can focus on his craft. And then he would walk me to the next retailer and tell me their story and the same thing over and over again. And it became so clear to me that this, this company was built around this mission of this central character, what we call in my book, the, the central character of your, of your idea. And for that, for Groupon, that, you know, it, was, it, was, it was certainly this mom and pop shop owner was the central character. That was the person that that company was trying to serve. And after that walk, I was so intoxicated by, by just that mission that I, I remember calling my wife on, on my way to the airport saying, I'm like, I don't, I, at the time I was, I was talking to Twitter. I was talking to other companies and I said, I, well, I'm coming here. I'm, I'm working here. And so, you know, the first, I would say the first two years of my time there, that was the story. We were focused entirely on the central character. 
But we continued to grow really fast. Forbes magazine at the time named us the fastest growing company of all time. And eventually we go public. And now it's not about mission as much as it is about quarterly earnings. And uh, what, you know, are we going to meet the next target? Are we going to meet the de- next deadline? And I, I believe that it was the, it was, the, it, it caused the shift in focus where now we were losing sight of our central character. We were focusing much more on the numbers. And as a result of that, a couple of things happened. I think number one, I think the business suffered because our central character started to lose touch with the business. These mom and pop shop owners were saying like, look, you're not serving us as well as you used to before. And that hurt the business, but it also hurt morale. A lot of people felt like they were showing up to work now in order to meet sort of a bottom line number instead of an overall mission, instead of that central character that really binds people together. And, you know, as a result of that, we lost a lot of our top talent. And eventually, you know, Andrew uh, Mason, the the founder of the company, ended up leaving. Um, And I did as well. Now, you compare a story like that for just a moment to a company like Airbnb, I remember meeting Airbnb early. I went, I went to their first office. And I remember one of the things that struck me was they had this storyboard on the wall of their central character story, two central characters, in this case, a guest and a host. But what they had done is almost drawn out storyboard frame by frame what their, what their character goes through. So that every time you walk into the office, you have this almost empathy bridge to who it is that you are trying to serve. And you never forget that. But the astounding thing, Mark, is I, I've gone, I've, I've, I've visited Airbnb throughout all their offices as they've gone bigger and bigger and bigger. And while the offices and the decor have changed and lots of people have, uh, have, have come and gone, those storyboards have always remained there. And if you go to their, if you go to their, their all hands meetings, they're constantly pointing back to those storyboards because they don't want to make the mistake of forgetting who their central character is. Talk about the venture you started that you struggled in the beginning, but you know, I think from your experience at Groupon, uh, you learned something that helped you turn around your own venture. Yeah, well, you know, on the on, on the note of the central character, I remember when I was I was pitching uh, Tim Ferriss, who is who is the author of a book called The Four Hour Work Week, and he he at the time was investing in technology startups, and you know, the way that my pitch deck sort of was organized is I spent the first 80% of that pitch deck talking about the market. So again, we were doing one-on-one health coaching right over your mobile phone through this company. My company was called Rise. And I talked about the rising rates of obesity and the rising rates of hypertension and you know just how big this market could be. And then at the very end of my pitch, I told a story. And the story was of my father, who when he was in his 40s, had an emergency triple bypass surgery. I was about nine years old and I remember going to the hospital and just feeling like my, my, my dad had aged like 20 years overnight. I also remember being in the backseat of my car as we were driving home and looking through all the paperwork that they had given us. And one of the pieces of paper, it was, it was basically lifestyle change. It was, it was how to eat. And on that list were things like eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts, you know, we, we, we were an Indian family. We didn't eat broccoli. We didn't really eat Brussels sprouts. That wasn't part of our diet. And there was nothing on that sheet about chicken tikka masala. <laughs> and so, and so we, it was lucky for us that insurance helped pay for the, the cost of a nutritionist who really helped us customize our lifestyle in order to make something stick, something that my dad could really stick to. And I believe that, 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 that that's really the reason that my father is still with us today. I really believe that that nutritionist saved his life. And I told Tim Ferriss this story. And his feedback to me was, why did you save that story to the very end? Why don't you tell that story first? Whenever you're talking to anybody, a partner, and a potential employee, an investor, you tell that story first. And the thing that he shared with me is that when he wrote the book, The, the Four-Hour Workweek, he was turned down by 25 publishers in a row. And a friend of his gave him a piece of advice, which is, you're trying to write a book for a mass market right now. You're almost writing as if millions of people are reading it. What if you wrote the book as if one friend, one person you know, is going to read this book? Just write it for them and see what happens. And he did, and publishers ate it up, and it became a mega, mega bestseller. The point is, 
that there's always a central character. There's always someone, one person that we are trying to serve. Now, it, that person might be one of millions, but it's so important when you get inside a room to really keep in mind who that one person is, like visualize everything about them. You know, I, I talked to an NPR podcaster just the other day who said that even though he's in a lonely booth doing his podcast every day, he has a photo of one of his listeners up on his wall. And he stares at that photo because he never wants to be, he never wants to be speaking as if he's speaking to millions of people. You want to be speaking as if you're speaking to one person. And you want to have that one person in mind. And once I decided to move my dad's story up front, then I could say, look, that's, that's one story. But there are millions of people out there that are living their own version of my father's story. Then we can talk about the market. And when I, when I just simply made that switch mark, everything really changed. I loved, you know, there was another thing that you talked about in the book I thought was quite interesting was um, you talked about and, and like to see you give an example of how destruction and creation go together. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, one of the things that uh, one of the techniques inside the book is this idea of exhibition matches, playing exhibition matches. And exhibition matches are these low stakes practice sessions that we play before we get into these high stakes moments. So, you know, when you, when you see someone who seems to be a compelling speaker, or they seem to be a natural, um, typically what I have found is that those people tend to be the product of lots and lots of practice. But that practice tends to be in these low stakes moments. It's in front of friendly colleagues, in front of friends, in front of family members that they've honed and they, and they, and they destroy in a lot of ways what they had. There's this destruction process so that they can continue to rebuild in order to get inside a high stakes moment and really kill it and really, really do well. But there, there are a few sort of rules or a few rules when it comes to sort of how destruction and creation kind of come together and ultimately how to play these exhibition matches. And the, the first rule is that when you're playing an exhibition match, and again, this, is, this, this could be just a practice session in front of a colleague, a friend, you, you want to make sure that you are giving them the real version, the real version, the same version that you would give if, as if you were in front of the investor or in front of that high stakes moment. You don't want to. You don't want to be giving them sort of the 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 director's cut, where you say, "Well, you know, so I'm going to do this now, and then what I would do when I'm in the room is I would do this." You want to give it to them just as you're giving it, because you want to build that muscle that's starting to really sort of get you ready for the room, and you can only do that if you're putting yourself in a real simulation. That's one rule. The second is that whenever we get feedback, whenever we share an idea, or we give a practice session to somebody we tend to ask a question along the lines of, so what do you think? So what did you think of that? And typically that doesn't really get us the feedback that we need. The, the question, hey, what do you think? Typically will either get us, you know, the, hey, I thought it was great reaction, um, where it doesn't really give us the feedback we need, or, you know, it'll get a shoulder shrug. Or, but you, the, the more specific question to ask is what stood out to you? From what I just said right now, what stood out most to you? Because now you start to really get a more clear sense of what's landing, okay? And, and, and if you wanna go one step further than that, ask your friend or your friendly audience, how would you describe back to me what I just said? How would you describe my idea back to me right now? And just see how they do it. Because then a couple things happen as a result of that. Number one, again, you see what's landing. You see, you see what's really resonating and sticking with people. But second of all, sometimes you'll actually get a better description from your audience than you actually had. You'll, you'll actually learn a new way to describe your own idea. And I still remember uh, the author Daniel Pink. He's a best-selling author. He's written a few great books. I went to him when I was thinking about this idea for Backable. And I shared the idea with him and I'm sure the way I shared it with him was very sloppy because I was just starting to come up with the idea of the book. And he said to me, huh, you know, the most exceptional people aren't brilliant. They're backable. And I was like, oh my gosh, you just nailed it. And I wrote that down and that ended up becoming sort of one of the, one of the guiding principles of the book. The, the most exceptional people aren't just brilliant. They're backable. Um, so make sure that, that, that you're getting them to play it back for you. 
Uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting also in your book was that you talked about PowerPoints. What's the best way to use PowerPoints during presentations to investors? Well, I, I you know, I used to make the mistake of of really putting all of putting the majority of my PowerPoint slides up front. So I'd say eighty percent of my slides were sort of my presentation, and then maybe twenty percent of my slides were, were left for discussion. And what I learned over time from backable people is to really flip that, reverse that. You had twenty percent of your slides up front, and then open it up for a discussion. And the reason for that is because you want to, you really want to open up the possibility for people to chime in and feel like they can be part of your idea. And so sharing a high level vision of what it could be, but not sharing so much so that you're sharing how it has to be is, is really, really important. One of my favorite stories from the book was from the 1940s where Betty Crocker introduces instant cake mix to the market. And, and they think that instant cake mix is just gonna kill it. Like they think that it's, 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 it's going to be a hit product. So they're stunned when they find out that no one is buying these instant cake mixes and they're trying to figure out why. And so they hired this, this psychologist named Ernest Dykta to go out into the field and figure out what's happening here. And what Dykta comes back with was really fascinating. He said, I think that you have made the process of making a cake too easy, too simple. Because you've basically removed the customer from the creative process. All they have to do is pour water into the mix and that's it. You made it so easy that when the cake comes out of the oven, they actually don't feel any ownership over that cake. So Dykta had a recommendation. He said, what if you remove one ingredient? So they did. They removed the egg. So now as a customer, you had to crack and mix in your own fresh egg into the mix and sales take off. Because now when the cake came out of the oven, customers felt like it was their, it was their cake. It was their creation. And this has been proven out over and over again. There was a group of Harvard psychologists that, that did a study on this and they called this the Ikea effect. And the Ikea effect basically tells us that we place up to five times the amount of value on something that we help build than something that we simply buy off the shelf. So there, there are a lot of people out there with these poorly made futons and, and furniture that they're, they're never going to get rid of it because, because they built it themselves. And so how, do, how does that have anything to do with, with PowerPoints and creativity? Well, you know, we've been told that creativity and innovation is a two-step formula. You come up with a great idea and you execute on it well, but there is this hidden step in between. And, and this hidden step is where we flip outsiders into insiders. Where we, where we bring in the early partners, the early people, the early team members, and, and, and we make it feel like it, it, it's their idea as well. That way, when we show up at execution, we show up together. Every successful organization, every successful political movement, every successful company, startup, never skip that hidden step. It can all be traced back to this hidden step where it wasn't just one person. It was a group of people that all felt like they were insiders in this idea. And so getting back to the slides, if you're walking into a room and you're sharing everything up front, it's very hard for people to feel like an insider with your idea. So share just a little bit, share just enough, and then open it up to the creative possibilities that can come up inside the room. I found in your book that every single thing you wrote, I experienced and found to be 100% accurate because I worked for the guy who built the Franklin Mint and I made this presentation. He told me the same thing. He said, you told them too much. You didn't even give them a chance to ask a question. You thought of every single question they would ask you so they didn't feel connected to you at all. And I thought that was a, a valuable lesson. And I read Larry Ellison's book about Oracle and Larry Ellison said that there was a competitor who had a much better product than his, but the, uh, the government, that's who he first sold his product to, the IT guys liked fixing his product uh, because it had so many holes in it. And so therefore they felt they were part of it and that helped make Oracle what it is. So I thought it was really interesting. It relates well to your, your story. Why is it important when making an investor presentation to tackle the objections early? Yeah, we talked. Yeah, we talked a little bit about steering into objections, and and I, I think that it's important again because, you know, there will always be objections to a new idea. 
and again, if, if it's if it's if there aren't if there aren't some objections to a new idea, then chances are it's not new. Uh, you're, you're not doing anything that's really changing things. Uh, whenever you're trying to change things, there's always going to be objections. And and you know what? Again, what I think we tend to do is we tend to uh, talk about sort of why an idea is exciting. And, but one of the things that I think it's important for all of us to keep in mind is that as human beings, Daniel Kahneman you know, Nobel Prize winning economist really taught us, really taught us that the pain of making a bad decision is twice as powerful, twice as powerful as the pleasure that we get from making the right decision. As human beings, it's called the loss aversion theory. The pain of making a bad decision is twice as powerful as the pleasure of making the right decision. And so when we get into a room, we can't just point out the positives. We have to neutralize the negatives. And the trick of it is that oftentimes people won't necessarily bring up the negatives. So the worst kind of presentation or the worst outcome could be that someone actually has a negative on their mind, but they don't actually bring it up. They just let that be sort of the thing, the reason that they say no. No matter what, whether they bring it up or not, it's always going to be something that's going to be nagging at your audience. And you don't want something to be nagging at your audience. If something's nagging at your audience, that means they're probably not fully tuned into what you're saying. It's just kind of at the back of their mind and they're waiting for you to bring it up yourself or they're waiting for an opportunity to ask. But if they're waiting for that, then they're kind of not paying attention, at least full attention to what you're saying in that moment. So, you know, Reed Hoffman, who's the founder of LinkedIn, is the one who talked to me about this when, when I was writing the book, which is that not only does he like to steer into objections, but he actually likes to steer into objections earlier rather than later uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in the conversation so that he can earn their full attention for the rest of the, rest of the pitch. He told me when he, was, when he was founding LinkedIn, this was 2003. And 2003 was just a couple of years after the bubble burst. Right. And so investors were very much looking. They were, first of all, they were skeptical of any dot com company. And second of all, any dot com company that was approaching investors typically at that point had to show a sign of revenue because they had been burned by the idea of companies just getting eyeballs and then monetizing later on. But at that point in time, in 2003, LinkedIn wasn't making a dime of revenue, not a dime. And Reed Hoffman knew that that was going to be on everybody's mind. So instead of waiting for somebody to ask that, he actually steered directly into it. By slide five, he said, look, I want to be clear about this. At this point in time, we're not making any revenue. But here are the three ways over the next three years that we expect that we're going to start bringing revenue into the company. Let me walk you through all three, A, B, and C. Now, were the, when I was interviewing, when I was, when I was studying him, I asked him, were these bulletproof techniques? No, by no means. Were they, were they, were they foolproof solutions? By no means, but just the idea that he was willing to steer into it, offer credible theories, things that could work. It first of all, it put people at ease inside the room, and it allowed them to. Second of all, it built credibility and allowed him to, them to tune into the stronger parts of what came next. So, one of the things I thought um, I really enjoyed reading about. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs uh, always focus on this is there's always a concern about financial runway, but you write about emotional runway. What is that and how does that affect what an entrepreneur is doing? Yeah. You know, when I was, so when I was leaving Groupon, um, I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so what I did was I started to create a spreadsheet of all the ideas that were on my mind. And, you know, <laughs> I still remember I went and met with a mentor of mine and I shared this spreadsheet with her and she looks at this spreadsheet. She looks at all the ideas and then she looks at me and she says, let me ask you a question. Which of these ideas makes you come alive? And I look back at the spreadsheet and I realized that none of them did. None of them made me come alive. I had spent the past few years at that point working in e-commerce so all the ideas that were on my mind were e-commerce ideas. So I, intellectually, I sort of knew that there were these things that, that could have some potential, but I wasn't really, I wasn't really excited about e-commerce. It wasn't the thing that necessarily made me tick. And so what really made me tick was healthcare. What really made me tick were, were things like, you know, 
trying to trying to go back in time into my father's struggle with his health and figuring out like we could we help other people sort of avoid what he went through. That was what really made me tick. And the story that she shared with me, and I'll share with you, was about Martin Luther King. And when Martin Luther King took over the the, the civil rights movement, when he really stepped into that leadership role, you know, I, I didn't realize this at the time, but he was very, very young. He was in his late 20s, early 30s when he stepped into this role. In fact, when he gave his I Have a Dream speech, he was only 34 years old. He's a, he's a very talented young, young, young leader. Um, but he went to a mentor of his, and when he was trying to decide whether to step into this role was the right thing to do, do I want to take this on? And what he told his mentor, this guy named Howard Thurman, was clearly the world needs this right now. And Howard Thurman looks at him and he says, don't just ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. And I think that what, what I find, Mark, is when I talk to entrepreneurs, we, we, we tend to do, especially those who are starting out, we tend to do an exhaustive analysis on whether your idea is going to fit the market. But we don't do enough analysis on whether that idea really fits you. Like, is it something that really makes you come alive? And the reason that matters is because we know that no matter what, whatever type of change we're trying to create, we're going to be on the receiving end of doubt and failure and rejection. And the thing that makes it through all of that isn't necessarily financial runway. It's emotional runway. Do you have enough juice in the tank to keep running with that idea? So it's a two-part analysis. It's not just does the idea fit the market. is. Does this idea really fit you? Yeah, it's funny you should mention that because if you watch enough Shark Tank, that's what the investors say all the time. Mark Cuban always turns people down because he said, yeah, I think this is a great idea, but it, I can't get excited about it, me personally. Yeah. And Lori says the same. So I think that's very interesting. But what are, what are the three most impressive stories you've heard that converted to a success that were driven by emotion and would they have succeeded if the founder or founders didn't have that element? Uh, I, I think that, um, I mean, there's so many, there, there's so many. I mean, I think- Or just one story. Yeah. I mean, you know, let's take, um, gosh, what's, what's, a, what's a non-obvious one to share? So I'll tell you the story of a, of, of a, of a founder who I, 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 one of the things I did when I was writing this book is I sat in on a lot of pitches. So I had spent some time working at Kleiner Perkins, which is a, which is a, you know, a venture capital firm in, in Silicon Valley. And I sat in on, would sit on a lot of pitches there, you know, as, as we were thinking about investing in companies. But then I, as I was, I was, as I was writing this book, I sort of traveled the country and I sat in on pitch meetings around the country. And, and I found myself in New York for a pitch meeting from a founder of a pizza shop, pizza shop owner. And he, he had never worked in tech. Uh, he was a fourth generation pizza shop owner. And, uh, and he had come up with the idea for an app where you push a button and you get a pizza from an independent pizza place delivered to you. So not a Little Caesars, not a Domino's, but an independent. A really cool app and a really cool idea. And I showed up to this meeting a few minutes early. And so I got to meet him. And while I was while I was talking to him, I I, I got to tell you, Mark, he was like the just the nicest, most charming person, and you could just tell how into emotionally involved he was with his product. Like he was showing me pictures of his great grandfather in Italy and their pizza shop, you know, back 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 in back in the old country, and you could just tell like this was something that he just felt very very passionate about. But then the investor started to pile into the room, and you could see his demeanor shift. Because now he, I, I could tell he was sort of starting to feel the pressure of being the person that he believed the venture capitalists want him to be. A little more buttoned up, a little more businesslike. Um, he starts to walk through his slides and you could just tell like that juice, that, that, that energy that, you, that, that I saw before, it was kind of gone. You know, it was much more buttoned up and I think it lost a lot of the, the strength and so about halfway through the presentation, I, I, I sort of blurted out, hey, do you have the app on your phone? And he said, yeah, I do. So we all sort of huddled around. We all got up out of our seats and we huddled around him while he showed us this app. And he started to swipe through and show us these different features and show us these little customer moments. And he lit up again. This energy came back. 
Because now we had shifted from, you know, we talk about this in the book, we'd shifted from presentation mode into huddle mode. And I believe whenever we're in huddle, huddle mode, we tend to be stronger presenters. We're always better when we're showing something than when we're simply describing it. And one of the things that does, one of the, one of the reasons huddle mode tends to work so well is again, it takes the spotlight off of you and it shines it to the thing that you're emotionally passionate about, right? Like sh sharing the customer, sharing the product, sharing the moment, sharing the story. It's not about me. It's about, it's about that. We, I think it doesn't matter if you're an extrovert or introvert, like you become more alive when that happens. Uh, we have a question from Chuck Daniels and Chuck asks, how do you share and earn secrets? It's uh, trait number four. And I also have that on my list as well as what is an earned secret. Yeah. So please. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll take you back to a moment that I had where I was sitting in the room of a guy named Brian Grazier and Brian is a, he's a Hollywood producer. He's won like 130 Emmys, dozens of Oscars, but he also invests in companies and he, and he also, he also runs large to pitch films and television shows to technology startups to apply for jobs and you could just tell that the, that the energy in the room was pretty anxious like it was everybody seemed very nervous and so when I went back to see Brian when I finally got called back to the conference room to see him I said you know Brian you have a lot of nervous people out there if I could go out there and give them one piece of advice right now just one what would it be and he thinks about it for a moment and he says Give me something that I can't necessarily find on Google. Give me something that's not easily Googleable. And I found that so fascinating because as I talk to more and more decision makers, these backers, what I realize is that great presentations, great pitches, great interviews tend to be based on a non-obvious insight that you personally went out and gathered. That could have been through talking to customers, that could be test driving the product, talking to competitors, customers, doing something that's not obvious in order to gather an insight that you can bring into the room. And in the book, we call this finding an earned secret, finding an earned secret. So, you know, just the other day, I was talking to somebody who was applying for a job at a social media company. She's a mother, of, she's a mother who was looking to return back to the workforce. And the trick of it was that she actually didn't use this app. It was very much a Gen Z app but she really wanted the role. She really wanted the job. And so she did something really smart. She interviewed every single one of her daughter's friends. And she asked them what they liked about the service, what they didn't like about the service, what, what do they wish was different. And then she had them send her screenshots of these little moments of their experience. So now she walks into this interview, which is over Zoom during the pandemic. And she, she brings this gallery of screenshots with her, these gallery of insights that she had gone out and personally collected. And this hiring manager is so impressed that not only does she get the job, but in the middle of this interview, he calls in one of their UX designers so that the UX designer can see some of these insights that she had grabbed. Again, this is somebody who hadn't even used the product, but by putting herself into the story, by going out there, going beyond Google, in finding these earned secrets, she was able to make herself a very marketable candidate. And I think the same thing is true whether you're starting a company or really anything else. So we have less than 60 seconds now. You've been a fantastic uh, guest today. So, and, and you're also an angel investor as well, correct? I do do some angel investing, yeah. So what's the one piece of advice you would give to all the entrepreneurs who are listening uh, today in order for them to have the best chance of becoming that unicorn entrepreneur? What's the one piece of advice? Well, I would, I would say, I would say the, the thing that tends to hold, I think, people back um, it are three words. And those three words are, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Um, you know, I, I, I play a little game with my daughters. I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old now. And I play a little game with them every morning. I ask them, you know, what is the meaning of life? And they say, to find your gift. And I say, well, then what is the purpose of life? And they say, to give it away. And it's based on a quote from Picasso. The meaning of life is to find your gift. And the purpose of life is to then give that gift away. And, and backable is fundamentally about how we, how we give our gift away. And again, there tend to be three words that hold us back. I'm not ready. 
I'm not ready to, to, to run with that idea. I'm not ready to speak my mind. I'm not ready to step into that leadership role. The thing that I would like to impart on you is that after now having spent years studying hundreds and hundreds of, I think, extraordinary people, what I realized is that none of them were really ready. Like three friends from design school were not ready to start Airbnb. A, a mid-level talent manager wasn't ready to go start SoulCycle. A 15-year-old from Stockholm, Sweden, wasn't ready to build an environmental movement, but today Greta Thunberg is Time Magazine's youngest person of the year. And there were setbacks, and there were failures, and there were mistakes along the way, but every single one of them seemed to adopt a mantra, which I now try to adopt, which is that the opposite of success is not failure. It's boredom. <laughs> it's true. So let's run, let's run with the ideas that make us really come alive and let's find good people to join us along the way. Because if no one's told you this, then let me be the first that you are ready. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time with us. I hope you're going to write another book because that would be terrific. Uh, you did such a great job with this book and we'll all stay in touch. Thank you again. Hope all of you have a great weekend and please stay safe. Thanks everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.